0: Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4, page 1696 in our pew Bibles, Acts chapter 4. As we look at the question that we started with this morning, what's in a name? We looked more at Jesus and Emmanuel this morning, but now we're going to turn to the name Christ or Messiah. Now the background of Acts 4 is that in a couple chapters earlier, the Holy Spirit has come on Pentecost... And inspired the church and, and, and filled them and had them speaking in, in uh, tongues of other, na- other native languages so that people could understand in their own languages all of those people that had come from around the world for, for that pilgrim feast of Pentecost. And they also got the special power to do miracles in the name of Jesus. And so in chapter 3, Peter and John met a crippled beggar at the temple courts and and healed him. And as you might imagine, word got around. And when word got around of something that happened in the temple, and when there was a disruption in the temple, immediately the temple guard and the priests and the Sadducees uh, started to take notice because they ran the temple. They had kind of bought the temple priesthood and they, they were the power brokers of, of uh, Jerusalem and they knew that if anything happened that might cause a stir that would catch the Romans' attention, they're going to be in trouble. So they had to first quell it themselves. And so that's the background of this story now is, as they come into the picture and, and uh, get in the faces of Peter and John. Acts chapter 4, we'll read the first 22 verses. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called on account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, And are asked how he was healed. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle. We can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened for the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I'll conclude our reading there, uh, would you join me in prayer? Jesus, Messiah, we come this evening to learn more about your name and to help us understand the power that it has as we call on your name and as we utilize our name, your name in, in this world. And also as we bear that name, Christian. So help us to understand what it needs and give us the power, and the ability to live out your name in this coming week. And throughout this Advent and Christmas season, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's in a name? We asked that this morning. And reminded ourselves that a name becomes our character, our identity. A name's important. So that we take offense if it's forgotten or misused or abused. And biblical names we noted tell us a lot about the people and particularly the role of a person. This morning we noted that at the birth, our Lord, at his birth, our Lord was given the names Jesus and Emmanuel. Emmanuel refers, reaffirms God's biblical promise that he is God with us. Jesus is the personal name of a historical human being, but also denotes that he is our Savior, God with us in a special way, in Jesus as our Savior. Now, Peter mentions the name Jesus as part of the, the powerful name that he is... He is ministering under and teaching in his name in acts 4 verse 12 affirming that there is no other name by which people can be saved but then peter adds another name to the mix christ what does this name mean for us let's look at this name for for a few moments this evening peter evokes his name in the context of a healing miracle and in confrontation with the hostile religious leaders we could call them the powers that be Peter or Paul coined this phrase when he talked about world leaders, but it really fits with these religious leaders here. The Sadducees were the first century power brokers in Israel, largely because they had sold out to Rome, and they were given very broad powers. They were wealthy aristocrats who, who actually owned most of the land in Israel, especially around Jerusalem. They wielded great legal, religious, and political power they controlled both the temple and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. Kind of like the Chicago Mafia of the 1920s, they controlled everything, and you just don't mess around with the big boys. So when they heard about a disruption of their empire by some followers of this Jewish rabbi that they had recently convinced Pilate to crucify, proclaiming that this Jesus was actually alive and healing a man, a layman in the name of Jesus. Well, they sent out their minions to put these disciples in their place. How are Peter and John to deal with them? How do we deal with our culture when it enacts and enforces laws that go against God's law? Or when maybe we're mistreated for speaking against the powers that be, are speaking or acting for the cause of Jesus Christ. Well, Peter and John respond in spite of unfavorable odds. After all, they're unschooled fishermen dealing with powerful judges and priests. But they did so because they knew there was a greater power than the powers that be. They could draw on the power from above. Their healing and preaching had stirred up people and And we note in verse 13 that the religious leaders were astonished. They were astonished. I think several things astonished them. First, Peter and John were preaching boldly that Jesus was alive. Also, they had healed a crippled man and he was standing right in front of them. And of course, they were addressing these power brokers with great courage even though they were unschooled, ordinary men. And in their astonishment, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They had been with Jesus. And Jesus scared them. That's why they had him killed. Well, as a result, they asked the question, by what power or what name did you do this? Now today, if you If you give someone your name, maybe you give them a business card, your phone number, your email address, you're actually kind of giving them some, some power over you, a power maybe to call on you, to maybe ask some favors of you. Well, in the first century, many believed that having the name of a god gave you power over that god, or at least allowed you to magically use that god's power. Now, obviously that wasn't kosher among the Jews, but the superstition was still there. But Peter's response, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is stunning. Look at verses 8 through 12 again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple, and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So Peter notes several things. First of all, he notes he and John's intention, which was simply an act of kindness. He also notes the culpability of the religious leaders. Jesus, whom you crucified... The stone you builders rejected. He reminded them of God's power, both in the healing of this man, miraculously, but also in the raising of Jesus to life. And he laid out the gospel message for them. Salvation comes only through the name of Jesus Christ. Well, it's in this context that I want to look at the name of Christ for a few moments. We could say Jesus was his personal name. Christ was more of a title. Anointed one is what it means. Jesus was anointed with God's authority. In the Old Testament, when someone was anointed for a task, the power of the Spirit, the power of God came upon that person. So anointing was a sign that God was with that person. But the Jews look forward to a day when the anointed one, would come. The Hebrew title being Messiah. Christos or Christ is the Greek title. They both mean the same thing, anointed one. So to say Jesus Christ is to say Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. And this should have also shaken up those Jewish leaders. In Jewish culture, particularly in the Old Testament, anointing happened on three occasions. When You ordained a prophet, a priest, or a king. In Jesus the anointed one, these three offices come together and are fulfilled, says the catechism. All three of them, the catechism tells us, Jesus is our chief prophet, our only high priest, our eternal king. We no longer have these offices or need these offices in the church because Jesus holds them still. Jesus is the prophet In the Old Testament, the prophet speaks for God to the people. He reveals the way to salvation. He reveals God's word and God's will for the people. Prophets told people how God wanted them to live and ushered warnings to them when they weren't living that way. But in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God had told Moses that someday I will raise up for them a prophet like you. And that idea got connected along the way with the coming Messiah, that the Messiah was that prophet. In the New Testament, it's made clear that Jesus is not just a prophet who speaks for God. He is actually, in a sense, the Word of God. The Word made flesh, John says in John 1. And he is the way, Jesus says himself in John 14, to salvation and life. Something Peter reaffirms here. So Jesus is the final prophet. That final word of God to the people, as the author to the Hebrew says, in past times God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken through his only Son. He reveals God's will and God's salvation. He's the ultimate revelation of God, speaking for God to the people. But he's also a priest. In fact, most of the book of Hebrews is about Jesus as the final priest, the chief priest. In the Old Testament, the priest speaks for the people to God, just a reverse role of the prophet. The priest speaks for the people by interceding with God in prayer, by sacrificing for the sins of the people in the temple. But Isaiah 53 points out the fact that there's going to be a new priest, Messiah, Christ, who not only is the priest, the mediator between us and God, but is the sacrifice for people's sins. And the author of Hebrews talks about that as well, that once for all he intercedes. Once for all, he makes peace through his sacrifice. And he continues to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father as our mediator or priest. And then finally, one of the great themes of Christmas is that Jesus is the king. That was kind of Matthew's point in, the, in his genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, that he's in the line of David. He is the king who will be on the throne, David's throne, forever. Later, the Magi come and ask, where is the one born king of the Jews? In the Old Testament, a king looked out for the welfare and protection of the people as he rules them on God's behalf. But in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David a son who would reign on his throne forever. And the prophets looked forward to the day when that son of David would arrive and again connected that with their understanding of who the Messiah or who the Christ would be. So Jesus Christ is also the king eternally, who perfectly protects, defends, and rules his people. So when Peter and John spoke in the name of Jesus Christ, they understood that they spoke with his power, with his authority, that it didn't matter how powerful the opposition because Christ is king. And that promises for us as well. Paul says our ultimate battle is not with flesh and blood, but against the supernatural powers led by Satan. But as Jesus showed in his casting out of demons, Satan's minions cower at Jesus' powerful name. But I want to go one more step with this, the next step that the catechism takes as well. And that is that to believe in his name, Christ, is also to share in that name. That's what the name Christian means. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, it goes on in the next question we didn't read. But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, that's as a prophet, to present himself to my, myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, like a priest, and to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity, reigning under Christ as king. So as Christians, as part of the body of Christ, we carry on his role on earth, and all Christians are now prophets, priests, and kings under the authority and in the power of Jesus Christ. And we see Peter doing this. We see Peter and John acting in their priestly, prophetic, and, and uh, royal roles in the story. As prophet, the catechism says, I am anointed to confess his name. A prophet speaks for God to the people. Just a note on prophecy, by the way. Prophecy is not first and foremost predictive it's not first and foremost foretelling the future. That's a kind of a misnomer. That's only a very small, uh, in, very small amount of what a prophet might have done, and, and many of them never did that. No, prophets were more about a foretelling of God's word. This is what God wants you to hear. This is what God is warning you about. This is how God wants you to live right now. Any foretelling that happens is all of God and not of the prophet himself. And so that's what we're called to do. Be forth tellers of the word of God as prophets. That includes speaking to other Christians for their support, encouragement, and God's glory. But it also calls us to speak for God in our world. As Peter and John did in this story. They got very bold and in the face of the the Sadducees. Peter was being very prophetic when he spoke those words in Acts 4. We're also called to be priests. A priest speaks for the people to God and kind of represents God to the people. Peter and John did that through the action of healing the crippled beggar. Not only showing him the love of God physically, but offering him spiritual healing as well. While the Old Testament priests offered sacrifices, Paul calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Jesus is the ultimate and once-for-all sacrifice. We don't have to do sacrifices anymore. But our act of worship is a sacrifice to Him. Sacrifices of praise and service and thanksgiving. And the same Peter that is in this story, in one of his letters, reminds us that we are a holy priesthood of believers. We're all part of that priesthood. We're all ministering priests Bringing people to God in prayer and bringing people to God for saving relationships. And then the Catechism says at the end that we are to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. There is a kingly aspect to our role even today. We fight with Christ's royal authority against the powers that be and the devil behind them. We do so in the power of the Holy Spirit and with the spiritual armor that we're given, according to Ephesians 6. And we see Peter and John doing that as well in verses 19 and 20. By bowing to the authority of Christ the King rather than obeying the religious leaders and the Sadducees. Obedience to the King is part of our kingly office as his representatives. Jesus reminded his disciples that one day they would reign with him eternally. And Paul puts it this way in one of his trustworthy sayings, 2 Timothy 2, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And so if we're going to confess the name Jesus Christ, if we're going to confess Jesus as the Messiah, then we also take the name Christian upon ourselves, which means that we then are to also live out those priestly office offices under his authority and in his power. At this point, you may be saying, oh, time out. I didn't bargain for that part. You might be saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not a Peter or John. I'm not schooled in theology or evangelism. I'm just an ordinary person. Reread verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, the qualification for prophets, priests, and kings for Jesus is not schooling or being in some way extraordinary. The qualification is being with Jesus. Being with Jesus. This Christmas we celebrate again the birth of the Christ, the Messiah. We'll even be saying his name a lot. Especially when we say, Merry Christmas. Well, when we celebrate, when we confess as we will in a moment, I believe in Jesus Christ. We confess him as Savior of our lives and our prophet, priest, and king. And if we make that confession then we also take upon ourselves the anointed role of ministering on his behalf to our world. So may this Christmas not only be a celebration of Christ, but may it be our attempt to bring Christ to the world. Let's pray. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, we thank you. We thank you for coming in our midst to show us what it means to be a prophet, priest, King, to exercise your priestly, prophetic and and royal authority. Now Now we pray that even as you incarnated yourself among us, we your church might be the incarnate body of Jesus Christ to our community, to our neighborhoods, to our schools, to our world, and that we might speak In the name of of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Help us to do so even amidst our failings. Through your power and with your authority. That we might share the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of being members of Christ and celebrating the birthday of the Messiah. We pray this in, in his name. Amen. Let's once again praise Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. It's from Lift Up Your Hearts, number 601. We're going to sing four stanzas. Would you stand as we sing together?